So we're in a series right now going through the Gospel of Matthew. And right now we're in Matthew chapter 5. And we've spent two weeks already looking at this passage in Matthew 5. If you want to turn over there with me. Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20. And today we're going to spend one more week looking at this passage in Matthew 5. I want you to just hold on to that story of the prodigal son, a very familiar story, one that uh, we've, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably heard it time and time again. I just want you to hold on to that thought because uh, what that story tells us in narrative form is exactly what Jesus is communicating to us in propositional form in this passage. And by the grace of God, I'm going to help you see that what Jesus has been telling us and teaching us from Matthew 5 is the exact same point of the message that he's teaching in that story of the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son tends to give us warm fuzzies. And this passage in Matthew chapter 5 kind of gives us the, you know, interject, what do you call it? Indigestion. Why can't I say that this morning? Indigestion. So in Matthew 5, we get indigestion, and Luke 15, we get the warm fuzzies, but truly they are communicating the same message, and I want to help you see that this morning. So Matthew chapter 5, and again, we're looking at verses 17 through 20. Matthew 5, is, Matthew 5 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus giving to his disciples, those who follow him. In verse 17, he says, do not think, don't, don't let the thought cross your mind, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is all from you. It is all inspired. It is all breathed out by you. It is profitable for us, for teaching, for training, for instruction in righteousness. Lord, that we would be complete and equipped for every good work. Lord, we are saved by your grace through faith in Christ, but we are saved unto good works. So Lord, help us to see the good works that you've called us to do, uh, that you have prepared beforehand that we would walk in them and that your word today would equip us to live a life of righteousness in this world, to shine as lights and to be salt. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, in San Antonio as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now just a quick recap because we have spent two weeks here and we've been looking at over the last two weeks the first two verses of this passage which talks about Jesus' view of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And that it's important for us to understand Jesus' view because as people who claim to follow Christ, 
The idea is that we should share in the same view of the Old Testament scripture that Jesus had. If we have a different view of the Old Testament than Jesus had, we're not following him. We're not, we're not truly being his disciples, his followers. And so we looked at we answered three questions. What is Jesus' view of the law? In what way did Christ fulfill the law and the prophets? And how does Christ's fulfillment impact our lives today? We've seen that Jesus' view of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, was that it was true. That the Old Testament really happened. They were historic events. Not only were the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, not only did Jesus believe them to be true, but he also believed them to be good. And he also believed that they were abiding, that they, they continued to carry weight and, and that they have not been abolished or they have not passed away, but they are still standing in full force today. That until heaven and earth pass away, God's law still stands. And we also saw that Jesus has fulfilled the law and so that for those of us in Christ, his perfect obedience and submission to God's law is imputed to us through faith. We receive his work of righteousness on our behalf so that we who have broken and transgressed God's law are now viewed as law keepers. We are now viewed as righteous even though in and of ourselves our righteousness is as filthy rags. That the work of Christ is credited to our account and that's what we looked at last week. Now the question here that Jesus is answering is one of his kingdom. You, you notice here when he, he, he begins to talk in these next few verses that we're going to look at today, he begins to talk about the kingdom of heaven. Being in the kingdom of heaven, entering into the kingdom of heaven, being great in the kingdom or least in the kingdom. And so this discussion about the law of God is a discussion about Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of God. And I would submit to you this morning that Christ's kingdom is not a lawless kingdom. It is not lawless. And there was a heresy that developed early in the, the first few centuries of the church that was lawlessness. It was called antinomianism. Now, I know that probably sounds strange to you, that, that word and that terminology. But the word anti, anti, simply means against. And against what? Against namos, which is the Greek word for law. So it was anti-law, anti-law, against the law. It's known as antinomianism. This developed within the church and, and throughout all of church history, antinomianism or lawlessness, they are essentially the same, have been denounced as heresy, been denounced by church councils, been denounced by church fathers, been denounced throughout all of church history as a perversion of the Christian message. Nevertheless, the, the sentiment for antinomianism persists and continues to persist throughout church history and even has strong sentiments in the church world today. And throughout church history, uh, Christian, uh, the church fathers and, and Christian theologians have, have seen and, and and, and seen in God's law three ways that it can be used. And we have been discussing the first way in some depth in the last few weeks. And that is that the law shows us 
our need for a Savior. And so theologians, church fathers, have said the law, in the, the first way, it acts as a mirror. It's a mirror. When we look into the law of God, it, it, it mirrors back to us our sinful condition. It shows us our sinful state, and, and it points us to Christ, the substitute, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. That's the first use of the law, a mirror. The second use of God's law is a leash, a leash that restrains sin within a society. And so a society where God's law is taught and God's law is proclaimed, a society that you know would, I don't know, you know, put the Ten Commandments up in the courtroom, a society that would even dare to, to have the Ten Commandments etched in stone, on the highest court of the land, above the highest court of the land, the Supreme Court, that a, that a, a society that would do that, would res, that sin would be restrained within that society and within that culture. That that is a, a use of God's law where it is taught and where it is embraced that sin and lawlessness is restrained. And as we have seen in our culture a... Um, an attempt to overthrow the law of God within the culture, what we have seen is lawlessness and sin increase because that leash has been loosened off of culture. Number three, use of the law, and this is where a lot of Christians just flat out choke, is it is a guide, a guide for us, a roadmap for us. The law of God reveals to Christians what is good, what is wholesome, what is true, what is pure, what is beautiful. It reveals to the Christian the good works that God has prepared for us. Not the good works by which we are saved, because by works of the law no one will be saved, but the good works by which we live a righteous life having been saved solely by the works of Christ. And so the law is a mirror pointing us to Christ. The law is a leash restraining sin within a society and a culture. And the law of God is a guide revealing to the believer the good works that God has prepared for us. And this is what Jesus now is dealing with in the second part of this passage. In the first part, he dealt with his view of the law. His view of the law, that it is good, that it is true, that it is abiding, that it is in full force. And then in the next two verses, he begins to deal with our view of the law. And do we, as his proclaimed followers, have or share the same view? This is incredibly important for us. This is that how we view the law of God will have a direct impact on our Christian life and our walk with the Lord. And so what Jesus is dealing with here is what is your attitude? What is your disposition towards God's law? Do you, do you find it to be beautiful? Do you find it to be lovely? Do you find it to be 
just a, a wonderful thing that you love and enjoy, or do you find it to be something else? Is our view the same as Christ? Can we declare like the psalmist, oh, how I love your law? And we see Jesus makes a clear transition in verse 19 after he says, I have not come to abolish the law. Don't even think it. Don't, you know, I tell my kids that all the time. Don't even think about it. Right? Don't even let this thought into your mind that I've come to abolish the law. It's not happening. I've come to fulfill it, and in fact, until heaven and earth pass away, not even the punctuation of the law will pass away. Therefore, he says in verse 19, therefore, in light of these statements, in light of the fact that Christ did not come to abolish the law, in light of the fact that Christ came and fulfilled the law, therefore, therefore what? Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Here Jesus starts with the negative example. After this, he'll give the positive, but first he starts with the negative. That sort of gets our attention, doesn't it? Whoever relaxes, he says, therefore, because I have fulfilled the law, whoever relaxes it and teaches others to do the same. Well, what does it mean to relax the law? Relax one of the least of the commandments, he says. It means to, to loosen the grip of the law on our lives. To lessen its authority in our lives. That's what it means to loosen it. It means to, that, that, that those who would make an attempt to unbind the Christian's life from the law of God are not doing the will of God and they're not in, in accordance with the teaching of Christ. To, to, to attempt to loosen the grip of the law of God on our lives and to lessen its authority, those who do that and teach others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I just want to draw your attention to the fact that Jesus uses this word least twice. Almost in a double emphasis. Whoever relaxes one of the least of the commandments, the, the smallest one, the little, the one that everyone would say is not important, it's not that big of a deal, they will in turn, those will be called least in his kingdom, in the kingdom of God. Let me show you an example of this in Matthew 23. Stay here in, in Matthew 5, but skip ahead with me a few pages in your Bible to Matthew 23. This is what the Pharisees were experts at. The ones who claimed to uphold the law, the ones who claimed to obey the law, that they were the worst lawbreakers in the, their perversion of the law of God. Matthew 23, 23, Jesus speaking to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. 
justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So, so the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they majored in the minors. That's what they did. They, they put these burdens on people of having to tithe even to the, the smallest minutia so that they, their holiness, quote-unquote, would be on display before everyone. At the same time, they neglected the weightier matters of the law. Love, justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. They, they totally neglected those and emphasized the smallest ones. Jesus says those who relax the law will be called least in the kingdom. Jesus pronounces a woe to them, a judgment upon them. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them blind guides. Those who relax the law of God are the least in the kingdom. And so what Jesus is saying here is that we should not listen to any so-called Christian authority, author, pastor, that would teach us to disobey God's law. Amen. That those who relax, those who loosen, those who lessen the authority of the law of God are least in the kingdom. Those who would teach us that we are not obligated to keep God's law are either severely misinformed and misguided. They don't, they somehow didn't have Matthew chapter 5 in their Bible. I don't understand or quite potentially are a false teacher. They're not teaching what Christ taught. And so here Jesus moves from the negative and then he moves into the positive. But, contrasting statement, but whoever does them, does what? These commandments, the commandments of the law and the prophets. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called Great in the kingdom of heaven. Do you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Then you must obey and teach God's law. Amen. Now I know what almost all of you are thinking right now. Pastor, this sounds like legalism. This sounds legalistic. You're teaching us to keep the law of God? I thought we weren't under the law, but we were under grace. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> let's go to Romans chapter 6, if you will. We're coming back to Matthew 5, but let's go to Romans 6 this morning. Romans 6. Remember, I told you last week that the book of Romans is, is Paul's exposition on how the law of God applies to the Christian. It, he deals with the law of God 
over and over and over again. In fact, 20% of the usage of the word law in the Bible is found in Romans, which only represents 1% of our Bibles. It's, it's extremely outweighted in this uh, book as it is its focus. But again, the question of are, are we not under grace and not under the law? How are you telling me that we are obliged and obligated to keep God's law? Let's turn to the passage, Romans 6, that, that uses that phraseology, not being under the law, but under grace. We're, uh, and again, we're, we're parachuting into Romans. But up until this point, Paul has shown us that we are not justified by keeping the law, that we are justified only through faith in Christ and his keeping of the law. And so in that sense, we are not under the law for justification. That's the, the, that we are condemned under the law as lawbreakers, but that we can be justified and made righteous through Christ's law keeping and faith in him. That's the summary of the first five chapters. So let's look at verse 14 of Romans 6. I would encourage you to, to really read all of Romans 6 to, to, and 5, and really the whole book of Romans, <laughs> to, to really get a grasp on this. Let me just show you a few things. Since, since you brought up that phrase, we're not under the law, but we're under grace. Since you brought it up, let's look at it. Romans 6, 14. For sin, what is sin? Lawlessness. lawlessness. Exactly. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is transgressing the law of God. That's what sin is. Sin is breaking God's commandments. God gave the commandments so that we could know what sin is. And so sin is, is transgressing the law of God, transgressing the commandments. So, verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. So the dominion of sin, the, the stranglehold that Satan had on your life when you were, as Ephesians says, dead in your trespasses and sins, but now in Christ made alive, now in Christ a new creation, now in Christ forgiven, now in Christ filled with his spirit, filled with his power, washed in his blood, now in Christ not part of the world but called out of the world, now in Christ, sin will have no dominion over you. Because you are not under the law, but under grace. And again, what he has shown up until this point is he is talking in terms of salvation, in terms of justification, in terms of our right standing before God. 
Our right standing before God is not based on our law keeping. Our right standing before God is based on the work of Christ that we receive by grace. So we are not under the law for our right standing before God. We who are in Christ are under grace. Therefore, being under grace, sin, lawlessness, law-breaking will have no dominion in your life. Verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. So, so are, are we, can, can, do we live in a lawless state, breaking? Do we transgress the commands of God now that we are under grace and not the law? Do we go back into sin? Do we go back into transgression of God's law, breaking of his commandments? The Apostle Paul says, by no means, or God forbid. Verse 16, do you not know? That if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Obedience to what? The law of God. Righteous, obedience which leads to righteousness. Righteousness by what standard? The law of God. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, slaves of law breaking, slaves of transgressing God's law, you were enslaved to that, have become obedient from the heart. Obedient from the heart. This is the key to all of this, obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having, verse 18, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. As the great 20th century theologian Bob Dylan put it, you got to serve somebody. You will either serve Christ or you will be a slave of Satan. You will either be a slave to sin or you'll be a slave to obedience, which leads to righteousness. And that the new covenant produces the desire within God's people to obey God's law from the heart. And because we are under grace, sin now has no dominion over us. Our knowledge of sin, how do we know what sin is? The sin that's not to have dominion over us. Where do we get that knowledge? From the law of God. The law of God is the standard of righteousness. It is the standard of obedience. We have, verse 18, been set free from sin to be slaves of righteousness. The question comes up, hasn't Christ, but hasn't Christ set us free? Yes, he has. He has set us free from sin. He has set us free from lawlessness. He has not set us free from his law. 
He has not set us free from what is good. He has not set us free from what is righteous. Christ has set us free from sin. He has set us free from law-breaking. He has not set us free from law-keeping. Again, some may say, well, this sounds, again, like legalism. But, but hear me in this. Legalism is trying to earn your own righteousness through keeping the law. That's legalism. I will earn my right standing before God. I will earn my righteousness. And that's not the gospel. And that's not what Christ or I am teaching. Your righteousness is not based on your law keeping. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Christ kept the law for us perfectly. Let's go back to Matthew 5 quickly here this morning. Verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this would have been an absolutely shocking statement to the people who first heard this. Because in their minds, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the most righteous people around. They had a corner on the market on righteousness. But as we saw from Matthew chapter 23, they were hypocrites. They, they had an an outward show of righteousness, but their hearts. Jesus also in Matthew 23 will say, inside you look very pretty on on the outside. You look very pretty, but on the inside you're like rotting bones. You're like a coffin that looks all pretty on the outside. It's, it's got wood and flowers and it's all nice and beautiful, but we know what's on the inside. Jesus says, Pharisees, you are like that. So for our righteousness to exceed that of the Pharisees, how, how is that possible? It means that we must have a righteousness that is foreign to us. A righteousness that is not our own. A righteousness that has been imputed to us, uh, credited to our account. The righteousness of Christ applied to us. That then transforms our heart. So that our heart, where we were once enemies of God and lawbreakers and we wanted nothing to do with God. Where the love of Christ has transformed us and saved us and called us to himself. And now our hearts have been changed towards God and now we love God where we used to hate God. Where we we used to be an enemy of God, now we're sons and daughters of God. And this changes our hearts so that we're in the the natural state, our natural state, we we hate God's law because God's law shows us who we really are, sinners. But now, born again and filled with the Spirit of God, a child of God, I'm not who I used to be. My, my relationship with God has changed. I'm a son and daughter of, 
of God. I've been brought into his family. I've been brought into his kingdom. I've been brought into his household. Not on my own law keeping, which I could never have done. But on the pure merits of Christ. And, and his work is offered to me by grace. Unmerited favor. That, that it only has to be received by faith. That Christ has called me to himself. He calls me in my sinful condition. In my broken down state. And he says, come and be a part of my family. And this is, this is how this passage is the exact same thing that Jesus is teaching in the story of the prodigal son. That in our sinful state, the Father welcomes us into his house. Into his house. And the Pharisees, they're the older brother in this story. They're the ones who are trying to earn their righteousness through legalism, through law-keeping. Totally separated from a relationship with the Father. Totally separated from a loving, life-giving, truly uh, in, in covenant fellowship with the Father. Just, I'll keep your rules if I get to have your stuff. That's legalism. That's the older brother. But Jesus, in the first part of this passage, he dealt with the lawless. He dealt with the antinomian younger brother. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So, so it's the, old, the younger brother who doesn't want to live in fellowship with the father, who doesn't want to live according to his law or his rules and wants it on his own way. But we are to reject antinomianism, lawless living of the younger brother. And Christ also calls us to reject the legalism of the Pharisees and the older brother. And what does he then call us to? He calls us to a relationship based on love. That God has loved us. That God loves us. And has shown us his love in Christ. In that while we were yet sinners... Lawbreakers, Christ died for us. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. As Christians, we, we reject both lawlessness the younger brother lifestyle, and we reject legalism, the older brother lifestyle. And instead, we embrace love. We embrace the love of the Father, and we love him, the Bible says, because he first loved us. Now, Jesus knows humanity all too well, and and. Depending on our makeup and our personality, we will all have a natural bent towards one of those. We will all have a natural bent towards trying to earn our righteousness through, through our law keeping or, and thinking that we're better than everybody else and looking down on all these lawbreakers down here 
or we will just reject the whole thing because there's no way I can live up to that standard and so I'm just going to live a lawless life. All of us have a bent towards one or the other and Christ calls us to forsake both and to embrace the Father in love. And love changes because we are born again by the Spirit of God. It changes our heart's disposition to the Father and to His law. Because Christ saves us and He changes us and He puts His Spirit in us and He puts His nature in us. And so in Christ, my relationship with the Father has changed. And so my relationship to His law has changed. God does not call us to blind adherence to his law separated from a relationship to him. My love for God leads me to want to know God and to be in fellowship with God. And because I want to know God, I want to know his ways. And I want to know what pleases him. And I want to walk with him and I want to be in fellowship with him. And so this leads me to want to know his, what he loves and what he hates and what he thinks is right and what he, what he declares is right and what he declares is wrong and what is good and what is evil. And so where once the law of God and my sinful condition was a source of death to me, now as a born-again believer in Christ in, in a loving relationship with God, the law of God is a source of life and blessing to me. And most Christians today do not know this or understand this because they have not been taught the teaching, the simple, clear teaching of Christ. They've been taught, just give Jesus a chance. Just give Jesus a chance. He loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. Just give him a chance. He's like the desperate kid at the prom who nobody will dance with. Just give him a chance. Oh, just give Jesus. No, that's not the picture the Bible paints of us of Christ. The picture Christ, the Bible paints of us of, of Christ is the victorious conquering king. Who rides on the clouds of heaven, who has a sword in his hand, who is discipling the nations with his word. The idea that you come to Christ and he lays no demands upon your life. This is what most ch churches teach today. Just, just give Jesus a chance. He, he'll lay no demands upon you, whatever, whatsoever. When Jesus is the one who said, take up your cross, and follow me. You, you must deny yourself, Jesus says, to chase after him. We, we must deny the sinful desires of our heart and instead submit to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. In John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we do this with joy because we love him. And we love him because he loves us. The call to Christ is not one of give Jesus a chance. The call to Christ is a call to repentance. To turn from 
sin, to turn from law-breaking to what? To righteousness through faith in Him. And true grace, saving grace, that enters into our lives. It not only forgives our sins, but it transforms our hearts and empowers us to live lives of righteousness. We are part of the new covenant and the covenant that Christ accomplished, it is a new covenant. I'm not saying we go back to the old covenant. That's not what I'm saying. But under the new covenant, the the Old Testament prophesies of this and, and the writers in the New Testament confirm it. Under the new covenant, God writes his law on our hearts. So the desire to keep God's law comes from the heart, not the external pressure, but the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. And so the law of God is applied by the Spirit of God to the hearts of the children of God. And if God, by his Spirit, is writing his laws on our heart, why would we have a negative attitude towards God's law? Those who look with disdain upon the law of God are either immature in their faith, they need to come to, a, to, they need to be discipled, they need to come to maturity in their faith, they're immature in their understanding of grace. But the law of God applies to us today, the commandments of God. Let me show you this. I just want to show you this one more passage and then we'll conclude today. Romans chapter 13. Let's flip back over there to Romans I could pause here and just spend a whole nother sermon on this, but I'd rather move, in, move further into this. So if you'll, if you'll just bear with me for a few more moments. And we look how Paul applies the law of God to new covenant believers. Romans chapter 13. Again, and he does this after he explains all of this for thirteen for 12 chapters till he gets to this point. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. This is how Paul applies the law of God. He, he points back to Exodus chapter 20. He, he says, you're supposed to love your neighbor. Well, how do I know what love is? We, we have competing definitions on love today. I don't know if you knew that. We'll find that out in a month, okay? There's a whole other definition of love out there. How do I know what love is? How do I know the true definition of love? Well, here Paul says that love, to love one another, is the fulfilling of the law of God. So, if you're going to love your neighbor, you do not commit adultery. 
You do not murder, you do not steal, you do not covet in any other commandment. So Paul uses the law of God to teach us what love is. It's not that love, oh, I love you, therefore I don't need the law of God. No, the law of God tells me what love is. The law of God shows me what it is to love my neighbor. The law of God teaches me, instructs my heart on the ways of God so that I can know what truly loving my neighbor is. And when I fulfill the law of God towards my neighbor, I, Paul says, am loving them. And so Paul applies the law of God. He goes to Exodus 20. He goes to the Ten Commandments. He says, this is what love looks like. And so if we want to know what love looks like, we need to study the law of God. If we're going to love our neighbor, we need to know what the commandments of God are for us towards our neighbor. We need to examine our hearts and see if there's any lawlessness attitudes in there, any antinomianism lurking in our hearts, any rebellion against God's law that that we would need to submit to the Lord himself. We should, like Jesus says, if we want to be great in the kingdom of God, we should do these things and teach them. We should believe the law of God. We should believe that it is true and that it is good and that it is abiding. Parents, we should teach our children the law of God. We should teach our children the Ten Commandments. If our children are unconverted sinners, it will lead them to the Savior, as the law is intended to do. If our children have have come to faith in Christ, it will be a guide to them on living a life under the blessing of God. My Lord tells me that I should keep his commandments. Therefore, I should go and study what they are. And endeavor by the Spirit of God to live them out through love. And when we do that, we will be called great in the kingdom of God. If I love God, I should love his law just like Jesus. Amen? I invite you to stand with me. Uh, Thank you. Stand with me this morning. We're going to conclude our time of worship by taking the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper reminds us that... Our righteousness is based on Christ's righteousness. The the Lord's Supper obliterates for us any notion of legalism, any idea that we are somehow righteous in and of ourselves. The Lord's Supper reminds us, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We remember the work of Christ As we come to the table this morning, we remember his perfect obedience to God's law. We remember his atoning death, his sacrifice, where he took upon himself the penalty of lawbreakers. Though himself never transgressing, though himself never sinning, he puts himself in the place of sinners. He puts himself in our place. And in his body on that tree, he bore the wrath of God that we all have deserved. 
The penalty for sin is death, and Jesus died the death for sin. All the third day, God raised him from the dead. Amen. And so that all who would believe upon him in faith would receive grace and salvation and life eternal. And as we remember today the work of Christ, we remember the effects that he has saved us from sin. And that he has called us to live a life of righteousness and holiness. All are welcome to the table today who profess faith in Christ. This is part of how we profess faith in Christ and our dependence upon him as we come to the table this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. It is uh, such a treasure to us. It teaches us and it guides us and it speaks with so much clarity. Lord, where in the world there is just so much confusion, your word is that blinding light that shows us and separates truth from error, truth from falsehood. Lord, as we've sat under your word today and as we come to your table today, I pray that your work of redemption would continue to progress and unfold in our lives. Lord, if we have any ongoing sin in our life that we need to repent of, Lord, that you would grant us repentance that leads to righteousness. We thank you, Lord, that you welcome us all by grace. and We're all saved by grace grace of your son, Jesus. We thank you for your grace this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.